crazy passionate about helping people find and achieve purpose, right? Whatever that purpose is. I've been always invested in community and giving back and help to uplift underrepresented communities and groups and very socially conscious. Again, do well by doing good. And it's okay if your primary purpose, especially when you're younger, is to pay the bills and to make some money and to be successful. That's awesome. As we move forward in our careers, I think at some point we've got to identify what is it that we're going to be passionate about? What drives us? What's our purpose at core? Because if we don't do that, we'll never truly be happy, right? And you're never too young to be able to take some time to reflect and think what's really important to me. So I'm all about being able to drive my own purpose to uplift communities, but also help people and empower people to be able to chase and achieve their own purpose. That's the voice of Brian Tippins, whose career spans over 25 years of leadership in the IT industry, primarily with Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Brian has been a powerful force for doing well by doing good through impacting diversity and sustainability and helping legions of others identify and achieve purpose in their life and career. How often are you able to gain an insight into the mind and heart of a C-level executive at one of America's most significant corporations, and especially one who truly built his own success from the ground up and has a passion for giving back to help uplift others. That's what you'll get today with my insightful and inspiring friend, Brian Tippins. Welcome to Changing Lives Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. This podcast was originally created to spotlight the leaders, alumni, and friends of the Cutco Vector Marketing community who are leveraging their positive influence to empower people all over the world to change their lives. Every few weeks, we go outside of the Cutco Vector sphere to bring you a guest who is teaching others how to have a more successful and fulfilling life, both personally and professionally. The special guests we bring to you here in episodes like today's are successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. The lessons they share are compelling, real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I am honored and grateful to have Brian Tippins as my guest here today. Brian is the Chief Sustainability Officer at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. He's been with the company for about 20 years. He is also the president of the HPE Foundation. Brian grew up in Oakland, California. He went to the University of San Francisco for his degree in management information science, then went to law school at uh, the University of Pacific McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento. Brian lives near Houston now, but several years ago, he was invited to be part of a group of Silicon Valley leaders that I have convened with over the past few years. And I have always found Brian to be extremely insightful and very inspiring. I'm sure that's what you're going to get out of today's conversation. Brian Tippins. Welcome to the Changing Lives Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for that kind introduction. And I'm super excited to be talking to you. I've been a fan of the podcast for some time. I know you always make your guests look good and have insightful conversations. So looking forward to the dialogue today. Excellent. Well, thank you for making the time. 
Sure. Um, let's start by, you know, having the audience get to know you on a personal level. Tell us a little bit about your background and uh, growing up uh, in Oakland, California. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. I was just uh, had the opportunity to visit. You mentioned I'm in Houston, Texas. Now I had the opportunity to visit back for a family wedding a couple of uh, weeks ago, and was so happy to be back in Oakland and thinking back to some of those those early years. I was born not only in Oakland but in West Oakland, California. Some of your viewers may know West Oakland, California at the time was the lower income portion of town. And well, grew up there as a child in the seventies and eighties. Where I uh, had parents who had a great, while they weren't edu- college educated themselves, had a great value for education and made the sacrifices to send us, my, myself and my two sisters, to the private Catholic schools across town, and was able to go to a private Catholic high school, Bishop O'Dowd High School, which college preparatory high school. So always had sort of a vision of success in education, but from that early uh, upbringing, always had an appreciation for wanting to kind of give back in my own community, and that. That's something that's that stuck with me to this day. So I was able to, after high school, go to first San Francisco State University, but I I transitioned shortly thereafter and went to University of San Francisco. This was at a time when we were in one of the early tech booms. I I should back up and say that uh, growing up, my dad was a computer programmer. I guess now you call him a coder. Back in those days, we called him programmers, right? And he had gone to a coding school and, and learned how to be a programmer. And so we always grew up with computers in our home. And so even back in the 80s, at a time before most people had computers or this concept of personal computers, we always had access to technology. And so very early on, I had envisioned myself being a technologist even when I grew up. And so when I got to University of San Francisco, I studied management information systems. The idea was I thought I was going to be a CIO or a CTO when I grew up because, again, we were in one of these early tech booms. But very shortly after getting out of my undergrad, I reasoned that I needed some more letters after my name. I wanted to be a more distinguished professional. And I didn't like math, so I didn't want to go to business school. I decided to go to law school instead. So I went to law school at uh, University of the Pacific, the George School of Law. By this time, my wife and I, Joseph, my wife of 30 years, we had just, just gotten married. We're starting a family. We moved from West Oakland to Sacramento, actually Roseville in the Sacramento suburb area. And so I uh, was able to go to law school there. And yeah, early in my career, I had done a little bit of time with the local telephone company there in Roseville, Roseville Telco, doing some technical work. But I migrated to Intel Corporation while doing my undergrad at University of San Francisco. So the Intel late 1990s during that tech boom, doing mostly hands-on technology work and, and envision myself again being a technology leader when I when I grew up. But when I started law school, my career pivoted just a little bit, right? And I mm-hmm. went to law school not intending to to hang a shingle and be a legal practitioner, but really to be a more distinguished IT professional. Again, had aspirations of being a CIO or, or CTO. And so I pivoted at Intel from doing that technical work to moving into their contracting licensing department, taking advantage of the technical background, but also the fact that I was working on my law degree. And I graduated law school in 2000, was able to move over to Intel Legal and was really enjoying the work that I was able to do there. It was contract licensing negotiation, some basic intellectual property work, which was great. But at that time, Intel, I don't know if that this is still their reputation today, was a very aggressive environment. We kind of prided ourselves, especially in Intel Legal, in being despised by everybody else in the Valley. We were doing a lot of M&A work and a very aggressive culture. And, and I didn't know that that was necessarily the fit for me. I was enjoying the work that I was doing, but it didn't necessarily fit with my own values. And so I ended up making a pivot to, to Hewlett-Packard in 2000. 
HP at that time was sort of your kinder, gentler Silicon Valley company. They had a headquarters in Roseville, California. And it was a company that I thought at that time really aligned with my own values and, and my approach. And so I, I joined HP in 2000 doing contract licensing, intellectual property work, legal work, was really enjoying that work and did that for a few years in Roseville. The company moved me and my family to Houston, Texas in about 2003, 2004 timeframe in a legal role, doing some Microsoft specific contract licensing for us and was enjoying that work. But, you know, hearkening back to those early days in Oakland, I've always been this kind of community focused person. I've always been kind of driven by this desire to do well by doing good. I'm one of these people who even to this day is like naive enough to think I can change the world, right? So even though I was doing my legal work during the day, I was spending as much time as possible doing the extracurricular, right? Putting on the company polo shirt and working out in the community, volunteering with the Habitat for Humanity and things like that. And one thing that I was doing a lot of that I was really enjoying was volunteering for our supply chain diversity program. We had a program in HP at that time that was focused on taking a portion of our big procurement spend and focusing on spending dollars with diverse suppliers, with minority-owned businesses and women-owned businesses and veteran-owned businesses, service-disabled veteran-owned businesses, right? Whatever that definition of underrepresented business was. And I enjoyed volunteering with that organization, going to the trade shows, meeting with diverse businesses, talking about providing opportunity to work with us as a, as a supplier. And so I had the opportunity to pop up in a man around the 2006 timeframe to take on leadership of that program. The folks who were managing supplier diversity prior had left the company through some early out retirements and I threw my hat in the ring. It was an area that I was passionate about and had volunteered with and knew that that was something I would would enjoy doing. It was um, Dan at a posted at a lower level than I was. I had reached a point of a kind of high level individual contributor in my legal function would have to take a career step back to take that supplier diversity program. But I did so willingly because it was, it was a great career move for me. It was, it was a, an opportunity to really chase passion. It was something mm. I was passionate about. And so I got that job in 2006 as an individual contributor. It was one of the best career moves I ever made because it allowed me to chase passion, but for a corporate purpose, a valuable business purpose. And I was able to move from an individual contributor to a supervisor, to a manager, ultimately to an executive as I grew that program inside HP's procurement organization and did that for a number of years and took a bit of a career pivot for a brief time and moved to our global real estate organization. Reasoning at the time I needed to get some operations on my resume. I had dreams of becoming a more highly empowered uh, leader and ultimately a very senior executive in the company. And so I took a career risk and, and joined our global real estate organization in 2012, looking after energy and sustainability across our global real estate footprint, but also facility management. I had about 5,000 employees, contractors back in those days that handled janitorial and food service and maintenance across our global real estate footprint. And, and that was a tough job. It was, it was more operational than I had been accustomed to historically, but it was a great for my career in that it gave me the reputation for, for getting things done, for, for moving the big rocks, for tackling some pretty big thorny challenges and cost savings and, and operational efficiency, which was great. And I did that for a couple of years until they knocked on my door in about the 2014 timeframe and asked me if I would take on the role as our chief diversity officer. You mentioned that I spent about five years doing that inside the company. And I'll tell you, I originally pushed back on that for a few reasons. One was 
I didn't know that it, we were as serious enough about the space as we should be as a company. The position, while it was C-level and title, was a bit buried in the organization. It was a few levels down from the CEO. And I felt like we had a lot of work and maybe had lost our way a little bit in diversity and inclusion. But I, I pushed back largely because I didn't want to, I say, diversity myself into a career corner. I had done supplier diversity before. I didn't want to be known for just just doing this diversity stuff, right? I say diversity stuff in air quotes. And then importantly, as one of the only African-American executives at the table, I didn't want to be viewed as, okay, let's find the African-American guy to go lead all this diversity stuff, right? But they kept hounding me about the job (laughs) and ensuring me that I was needed in the role at the time. This was a pivotal time in the journey of the Silicon Valley in terms of diversity. This was in the 2014 timeframe when a lot more attention was being paid to the lack of diversity in tech. You had organizations like Reverend Jackson and the Rainbow Push Coalition coming into the Valley and asking companies to be transparent. San Jose Mercury News, all the media outlets were calling on companies to be transparent about the makeup of their workforce and what they were going to do to increase diversity. And so after a lot of thought, I reasoned that, that I was the right leader at the right time and was so committed to the company that I wanted to take on this challenge to help us navigate through these rough waters. And it, it ended up being a, a, it was a bit of a career risk. I, I reasoned that if I wasn't successful, that maybe that might be my last role. But we, we were quite successful. It was, it was a great five-year run. We were able to do some pretty monumental things. Diversity and inclusion, particularly in the tech, is one of those areas where sometimes you're like one step forward, two step back. It's, it's a journey and you don't make massive change in, in, in a short amount of time, but we were able to make a good impact in, in the time that I was in the role and very proud of our, our contributions. So I did that for about five years, Dan. And the reason that I got into that point where I had done my three to five year commitment, it was time to move on to the next thing and make room for the next leader to come into that space. And I spent a little bit of time here at HPE. We had done a separation by that time and, and created two net new publicly traded companies. And so I was with Hewlett Packard Enterprise. And I spent a brief time leading an employee experience culture function inside the company, and then pivoted about a year and a half ago to my current role, to being chief sustainability officer, looking after our environmental social governance agenda, and also have the opportunity to be president of our our foundation, our our nonprofit, our 501c3. And so as I reflect back, everything I've done has been just very much about purpose and being able to leverage people and purpose, but for driving, driving business value. So it's been a, it's been a great 20 ish year ride. Love it. I love it. Everything being about people and purpose. I think that resonates with our audience here for sure. I love how your appreciation for giving back goes all the way back to your roots growing up in West Oakland and wanting to be somebody who could contribute to your community, who could contribute to society. I think that's something that a lot of people listening to this really value. Also interesting that your dad was in in tech, right? Like yes. the the uh, the original tech back uh, in the early days, and and that that is probably part of what helped inspire you to get into uh, the tech industry. Although you're not in tech industry as a technologist per se, you're in technology. You're in the tech industry as a people, a leader of people, right? Yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you, Dan, I, 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 um, I mentioned our computer. We were the first that I knew to have computers in the home. I still have one of those early computers from the 1980s. It's a TRS-80 Model 3 that had 16K of RAM and the 8.5-inch <laughs> floppies. And, man, I could, I could open up a computer museum someday. <laughs> that is cool. That is cool. I don't think I had a computer, Brian, until I think like maybe 1994. Wow. wow. So 
Yeah. I mean, when I was in college and we needed a computer, we went to the computer lab right, right. where there was a bank of like, you know, 20 or 30 of them. Yeah. Wait, wait, sometimes waited your turn for one to be available. Right. And then, you know, you'd go in them with your floppy disk and you'd put it in and take, you know, work on your stuff and then save it to your floppy disk and then, you know, go back. The good so, old days. Yeah. I think that's the experience that most people had just to, to how amazing now that we've got supercomputers in our pockets at all time, how far we've come, right? Incredible. Exactly. Yeah. Incredible. So getting uh, into Hewlett Packard, you mentioned that, sure. you know, leaving Intel, getting into HP, that it was aligned with your values. It was a company that was aligned with your values. The idea of doing well by doing good is something that really resonated for you in those early days. I would love to hear just more about the foundations of Hewlett Packard and just the ethos of the company, what you saw when you got into it back then, and just anything you can share about the uh, the foundations yeah. of the company. Yeah, you know, I, I mentioned being a computer nerd. Uh, you know, it's been great to have had the opportunity in my career to watch the evolution of technology, but also just the evolution of the valley, right? And the ecosystem and the culture of the valley. And HP as a company very much played a massive role in creating what we know as the Silicon Valley today. And so some of your listeners may know the company was founded back in 1939 by two young guys, by Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard, who had gone together, gone to school together at Stanford University. And they created the company in 39 in a small garage in Palo Alto, California on yeah. Addison Avenue. And it's a small garage that, that is still there to this day, by the way. We share ownership of the garage with HP Inc., right? And we use it as a bit of a museum piece, but we also host dignitaries there and do customer meetings. And it's just always so great to, to be there because of the history there, there's a plaque out, out front in front of the house that, that talks about the birthplace of the Silicon Valley, right? We've got credit for being the birthplace of the valley because of the technology they created there. Back in those days, HP was a test and measurement company. And the first products that they made back in 39 were audio oscillators or audio oscilloscopes. I always forget the right terminology that they sold to the Walt Disney Company to make the movie Fantasia. Many of your team members will be far too young to know any of this stuff, right? But (laughs) we made these great products, but also out of that came the culture of the Valley and attributes like management by walking around and being transparent and, you know, some of the open door policies and a lot of the kind of cultural attributes that continue in the Valley today. And so out of that, the company grew massively over many years in 1950s, they, they, Bill and Dave, put pen to paper and wrote out some core objectives, some core values for the company. And one of them was, was we're committed to meaningful innovation. We're committed to being an intellectual, social, and economic asset in every community where we do business, right? So throughout the evolution of the company, it was a company that was always very much focused on giving back and, and helping to build communities and creating meaningful technology to advance the way people live and work. Uh, HP was one of the companies, as I talk about diversity, that had an early commitment to diversity and inclusion long before any other tech companies were talking about this in the Valley. I know you've had Ken Coleman on the show before, uh, um, African-American Silicon Valley pioneer who was with HP back in the 1970s, but he tells a story about he was hired by or referred to HP by Roy Clay Sr., who's an African-American Valley leader who was hired by Dave Packard in the 1950s to come build a, a PC business. And so just some examples of the long commitment that the companies had to inclusion and diversity and giving back in communities has just always been part of our, our DNA and how, and how we operate. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So you, if, if we can fast forward again now, sure. back to when you're in your, your role as chief diversity officer, starting yeah. 
2014. This is the role you sort of pushed back on for a while, but then finally realized like, I'm the right guy. It's the right time. This is the right place where I can really have a significant impact in this role. Tell us a little bit about the intentionality that went into building diversity at HPE. Yeah. So we had the benefit, Dan, of, of not being new in this journey. So this was the time in 2014, 2015, as the scrutiny was beginning, the heightened scrutiny around diversity in tech. A lot of companies had to rally and scramble and quickly put together a program. They hadn't yet focused on this. They maybe didn't have a chief diversity officer. We had the benefit of having foundation and had long been focused in this space before that heightened scrutiny came in. But certainly our efforts accelerated. I like to say that diversity and inclusion doesn't happen organically. There has to be exactly, as you said, some intentionality around it, right? We're all well-intentioned people. I think we all, no one would tell you that they were not for diversity, not for inclusion, but absent some very deliberate focus, it just doesn't happen. And so our structure, our program, our focus is much like other companies. It has to be on multiple pillars. When you talk about diversity and inclusion, particularly in Silicon Valley, a lot of the focus is around the numbers. What does the makeup of your workforce look like in terms of gender and ethnicity? What do those percentages look like? And whatever that percentage is today, if you've got 25% women today, then success next year looks like 26%, right? And so a lot of times company will, will focus purely on those numbers and look purely to talent acquisition to make sure we're hiring a diverse workforce. And certainly that's important. That's part of it. You have to have intentionality about how you're making sure you're casting a broad net and reaching those diverse communities and bringing in a a reflective uh, set of uh, new team members. But it can't just stop there. Once you've got those team members in the door, it's how are we being intentional about how we're growing and developing them, providing the training and the learning development, the tools that they need to be successful in their careers. How are we creating an environment inside the company that feels like an environment that's very inclusive? I think that's almost more important than the hiring of diversity because you could hire the most diverse group, but if you don't have an environment where people feel like their career aspirations can be met and there's people who look like them, then you won't hold on to that diverse talent pool. And so all those things that you do inside the company between employee resource groups and cultural celebrations and creating this environment of inclusion where all people feel welcome, and you've got to be really, really intentional about that. And then finally, how do you leverage that for for business value? You can't have diversity just for the sake of diversity. It will never succeed unless we know that there's truly business value behind that. Being able to articulate that, for example, we know that having a diverse workforce helps us to attract and retain the best and brightest because we're in a war for talent. We're always out there trying to compete with other tech companies for the best and brightest talent. And so we're able to leverage our diversity leadership to be able to say that we're bringing in a diverse set of folks where they're coming into a company where there's people who look like them and their career aspirations can be met. We also know we leverage diversity because with diversity comes a spirit of innovation we're a better company. We've got a broader set of ideas, right? It's how can you articulate that business value? But to exactly to your point, it has to be very intentional. It doesn't happen organically. There has to be a focus on diversity and inclusion in the same way that we focus on everything else that's important to us as a company. It's, it drives me crazy, Dan, when people in these roles say things like, my job is to work myself out of a job. And I get what people mean when they say that. And they want to have a day when this all happens naturally. And you don't need to focus on diversity and inclusion. But you never hear a CMO say, I want to work myself out of a marketing job. Or a chief financial officer say, I want to work myself out of a job. If it's important and critical to the success of the business, then, then you have to focus on it with that intentionality. Yeah, exactly. So paying attention to the numbers and metrics is one of the elements of intentionality. 
just simply tracking like what percent of the people we have in our organization are part of yeah. different groups, right? Totally. Ca- casting a broad net, uh, you mentioned as well, because I do feel yeah. like a lot of times the way organizations are built are around the similar sorts of networks and yeah. groups of their current people, right? Totally. And that it's sort of begets more of the same, right? Um, So being able to find a way of casting a broad net is critical. You referenced creating an environment inside the company so that once diverse individuals come into an organization, they feel part of something there. They feel welcome there. They feel comfortable there. They feel like there's a path. They see role models. That is such a critical thing that I notice in our organization, you know, is that there's a, a need in some cases for role models for a lot of the, the young people coming in to be able to see other people like them succeeding totally. so that they can feel like they have a path as well. And then all of this is underscored by the last point you made, which is the business value of it. Uh, we are not striving to build diverse organizations because it's the right thing to do. Totally. That's part of it, of course, but also we'll do better as a company totally. when we have diverse organizations. We'll attract greater talent. We'll keep greater talent. Uh, we'll have better ideas in our organization. We'll have a better culture and everything will, will, will be better because we have a diverse community organization. So, um, totally that was great. Yeah, I totally agree. We, we talked, let me t- uh, touch on a couple of things you said. One, the, the importance of role models, which is just incredibly important because, you know, we can say we've met those numbers. We've increased our African American or Hispanic or Asian American population and we can pat ourselves on the back for that. But if all those individuals sit at the bottom of the org chart, then we haven't done our job, right? There has to be role models and senior level roles to help create the impression that I can be like that person, right? I uh, talk about it in terms of what I call the the profit effect. And it's P-R-O-P-H-E-T, named after a gentleman by the name of Tony Profit, a big name in the Silicon Valley. And he was with HP at at, at a time when he was our most senior African-American leader. At the time, he was our only African-American senior vice president leading our PC business as we were going through explosive global growth. And as long as Tony was here for the African-American community inside the company, there was this view that one day I can be like Tony. And when Tony left us to go take a job at Microsoft, he subsequently ended up going work for Mark Benioff at Salesforce as their first chief quality officer. When he left us, there was like this collective exasperated sigh inside the company because we lost that that role model, that aspirational figure that, that Tony represented. So I'll always call it the profit effect, right? But you can look around the Silicon Valley and name the top Hispanic leaders, the top African-American leaders, because it's a handful of folks. And so having those role models is critically important and creating an environment of inclusion. Part of that is being able to elevate and tell those stories and highlight those, those diverse leaders, which is really important. And then on the value proposition piece, I like to talk about it in the context of what I saw called the three C's of diversity. The first is compliance. We've got to meet some diversity requirements, the, the makeup of our workforce, depending on where we do business in the globe. Everywhere we do business, there's some requirement in the state of California around the composition of your board of directors. When we do business in Brazil, there's rules around having a portion of our workforce be folks with disabilities, right? Everywhere we do business in the world, there's some diversity workforce requirements. So we don't want to run afoul of those, but that's table stakes. Then beyond that is corporate social responsibility. That's the right thing to do message, right? We want to be able to say in our annual report that the workforce diversity reflects the diversity of our customer base and the communities where we do business. That's a touchy-feely nice thing to do message. But the third C is clearly the most important. It's competitive advantage. It's exactly as you said. We have to be able to articulate why diversity is good for business because our customers 
care in the marketplace because communities of color are brand loyal, whatever that message is, right? Because we foster innovation or can hire the best and brightest. We have to be able to articulate how business improves based on that focus. Yeah. Love it. Great stuff. You know, uh, Cutco and vector marketing evolved out of an old school sort of door-to-door selling model back in like the 1960s and 70s, which was not, not just male dominated. It was pretty much all male. And, and therefore the original leaders of the company dating back to just before I started. And certainly at the time when I was uh, a new person in the business were largely male and we've struggled over the past few decades to be able to build this element of diversity in terms of female leadership. I can use that as a specific example for, for our company. For us, the Tony Profit effect is the Angie effect. It's um, one of my peers uh, in the company who runs our Canadian organization. It's the highest ranking female leader in our field organization. And she's a great role model for others who have become divisional managers in the company. And hopefully they're role models for a lot of others who are becoming great leaders in the company. But there's still, there's still a long way to go. There's such a long way to go to be able to create what we really want. And we're missing this competitive advantage of having a lot of young females come up in our organization and see a cadre of great leaders that they can aspire to be like. And yeah. so it's just such a great point that it provides that advantage for the company when you can have that. It really does. And it's a journey, right? We're always going to struggle with it. We'll get this right at some point, but we have to view it as a long-term journey. We'll have ups and downs throughout the way. We see today a current environment where there's a bit of a diversity blowback, right? Given all that's going on, the geopolitical situation, the politics in the U.S., for whatever reason, there's a, a we hear now more from non-diverse populations the what's in it for me, right? I'm, I'm not a, a woman. I'm not a diverse candidate. I'm not going to get promoted in the company. I'm a straight white male. What's in it for me? I think we have to continue to focus and reinforce that it's around providing opportunity for all, right? It's not about affirmative action and quotas. It's casting a broad net. It's being able to make sure that we're looking at the best and brightest and being intentional where the numbers tell us that we've got work to do, but it's not to the exclusion of, of others. And that, that's, that goes back to the whole environment of inclusion. Yeah. I subscribe to a newsletter or I read a, a email newsletter from Porter Braswell called Diversity Explained. I don't know if you know Porter. Kenny no. Coleman worked for him for a while. He, he came to one of our dinners one time as well. He lives in New York. But the whole idea of diversity explained, I think, is something that it's sort of kind of a misnomer, but people, people actually need to have an understanding of it because otherwise it can become this us versus them sort of tribal sentiment. I sent you this paragraph, Brian, from Jonathan Haidt. I want to read this and just get your reaction to it. Jonathan Haidt says, if we're going to create diverse societies, diverse schools, diverse corporations, we have to be turning down the us versus them, turning down the tribal sentiments. Our minds track group distinctions. They track race and gender and everything else. If those distinctions are useful, thinking is for doing. So the more you play up these distinctions, the more you make conversations frightening because you could be called out for insensitivity. The more people will notice who they're talking to, 
self-censor in regards to that group or person. And the more you move away from the kind of outcome that we all really want, which is a peaceful, harmonious, productive, diverse society. So I think the untruth of us versus them is that life is a battle between good people and evil people. There are conditions that turn that down and we need to look for those conditions in all of our institutions. That's part of what leadership should be. When I think about this idea of like diversity blowback, I think that, uh, you know, part of why might be that some people feel like it goes beyond inclusivity into sort of this us versus them tribal sentiments. And I think that there are people who are afraid of diversity because it challenges their own sort of comfortable status quo. And on the other side, there are people who sort of demand diversity at all cost which I also don't think is right. But many people lie in between. They want diverse communities. They want diverse organizations, but without falling into identity politics. And where, like, what's your reaction to what Jonathan Haidt wrote? And, and how do we find the balance here, Brian, where we, we are rejecting identity politics, not just in corporations, but in our society at large, while we are simultaneously building diverse communities? It's a huge challenge. And then the quote is just super astute. It's just challenging stuff. And I think it goes to this, you know, base level, this concept of, of bias and, and unconscious bias and the fact that we all have these biases. And it's not a bad thing. It's just quite natural, right? You mentioned the word tribal inside the quote. It's quite natural that we gravitate towards those who look like us or share some affinity with us. And and that's natural. It's survival of the fittest, right? And so we've got to be able to challenge those in a way that doesn't create that us versus them. And that, that's the danger of some of these diversity programs, particularly because they're, they're emotional, right? I talked about the, the kind of the genesis of this current round of focus on diversity and inclusion in the Silicon Valley, harkening back to around the 2014, 2015 timeframe. Well, the tone certainly changed in a post-George Floyd era or given the Supreme Court decision here recently on Roe versus Wade, right? Everything is quite polarized and politicized and it's very emotional stuff. And so we run the risk of focusing in the wrong way that creates or perpetuates that us versus them. And we've got to get past that to be able to message the importance of this to not exclude anyone. I think one way to try to, it's always going to be emotional, one way to try to is be focused on the data, right? We're focusing on these marginalized groups because the data tells us we need to, whether it's just you're looking at your workforce and saying, we have such a small percentage of women in our sales force, we need to increase this, or whether it's total workforce or different levels in the organization, or if it's economic status, whatever it is, use the data to show that we're not on equal footing. We don't have equity. We need to have that area of focus. And it's not a black thing or a brown thing or an Asian thing or a woman thing or a man thing. It's about creating equity. I think that's an important message to, to kind of focus on the data and then focus on our values as a company, what it is we're trying to achieve, what's our purpose, what the culture is we're trying to drive. And then importantly, the fact that there's a role for everyone to play, right? This isn't just, and, and that's a risk in diversity programs when we focus too much purely on a marginalized group and a pride event and a Black History Month event and the Hispanic Heritage Month event where only those groups show up in the audience to attend the event versus saying this is a celebration of culture that we want us all to participate in. With all that said, I fear that things may get worse before they get better. These are challenging times we're, we're living in. And I think the blowback, as detrimental and unfortunate as it is, is kind of natural. It's natural. It's hard to argue, right? And so I think we've got our work cut out for us, which is why we need to be intentional about how we continue to focus on these programs unapologetically to continue to move the needle. Yeah. 
I love what you said about the there's oftentimes where the data shows us we need to focus on something, right? That we're just not on equal footing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that people can agree to and kind of come to terms with and say, hey, that's just the truth right there. And that's sort of a hard truth. But also like the idea of, well, what are our values as an organization? You know, like I think, and I believe that that the uh, organization that I work with does value having diverse communities and does value building people of all sorts uh, and helping people have opportunity. Like what, what we primarily value is giving people opportunity, right? That's kind of like why we recruit such young people in our organization. We don't need somebody to have a, you know, a certain level of education or a certain family background or any of that stuff. We, we just want a kid that has a good attitude and wants to work. Right, right. right, And we want to give them opportunity. And that's part of what we value. Um, and you said there's a role for everyone to play. Like in, in an organization like ours, there is not a, at least most levels of the company, there's not necessarily a finite number of positions. As people sort of advance and, and become a candidate for the next level, we create opportunities for people. We've restructured our company a few times. We've moved around lines. We've done things to like give people opportunities when they've earned it. And that there is a role to play for everybody. So just this whole idea of uh, being able to see places where we're not on equal footing and, and, you know, what can we do? What are our values? How can we create the roles for people to be able to fill? You talked about, Brian, the, the idea of the blowback and that it might get worse before it gets better. As a white, straight male, I guess what I could, what I could try to say here is that if a method to create diverse organizations makes, if, if anything about diversity makes me feel attacked, right? So for example, there, there were times in the days of particularly in 2020 where there was a lot of like negativity around being a white male, right? Anything that makes me feel attacked is sort of counterproductive. Whereas anything that makes me feel like, Hey, come on in come on into our tent and check it out, right? Like this is what, this is what's, what we are trying to accomplish. Anything that makes me feel sort of embraced or a part of the answer, a part of the solution uh, is motivating and inspiring because I do look, like you said, at, th- at places where we're not on equal footing. I do look yeah. at data. I do look, for example, like how many women leaders exist in my company right now? How many African-American leaders exist in my company right now? And I point yep. blank realize like, we've got to be better for sure. So anything where there's sort of positive or embracing methods are inspiring to me, whereas the, the sort of the counter side of that, that makes me feel like there's something wrong with me or how I operate doesn't make me feel good. And I think that that probably applies on both sides of the coin. How do you think we can employ more sort of positive and embracing methods to destroy prejudice and biases and build diverse communities? Yeah, and I, I thank you for sharing that that personal observation. I think you're you're definitely not alone in that. I think that was a prevailing thought, and I hear it all the time uh, about you know the the potential impact of making people feel alienated by by that focus and that messaging. I recall after the murder of George Floyd, as we were trying to figure out what to do as a company, 
And I think one of the first things we decided, I remember having reflect on this over a weekend and try to do something right away starting the next week. And one of the things we decided was to pull everyone together in an all-team member meeting that Monday or Tuesday. Didn't know what we were going to say, just knew that the worst action at that time would be inaction. And so we did more listening. We were empathetic. We didn't have a lot of answers, but it was just important to bring us together in that moment. And very shortly thereafter, I convened a session. I called it, let's talk about allyship. And I brought together a professional cow speaker author, Melinda Epler, who's the allyship expert. I pulled together some friends from inside of HP and a, a friend from a customer, a, a guy by the name of Craig Cuffey, who you know, right? Craig was at Salesforce at the time, was their chief procurement officer, one of the most senior African-American leaders in the Valley. And we did a panel and we invited all of our team members around the globe to participate, to talk about how we can all be allies, to help educate and talk about the feelings that some of us were going through at the time and, and help people in these times when they wanted to be an ally, but maybe didn't know how, how to reach out. How are you feeling? How can I be helpful? And that was just one thing we did in attempt to, to, as we keep saying that there's something, there's a role for everyone to play. It's about creating a call-in culture versus a call-out culture, right? Mm. In environments like this, I talk about these biases and these, but you hear the term microaggressions. We call on people to stand up for their team members. If you're in a meeting and you hear that the woman keeps getting overspoken by the men in the room, you want to you clear the way in the moment to, I, I think Anne had something important to say there, Tom. I, I want to be sure we hear this, right? And, but we have to be able to do those things in a way that's calling in versus, versus calling out versus right. stop interrupting her, right? But but to say, you know, find ways to, to bring people in. Or if you hear someone say something that's culturally insensitive, it, it's not necessarily done with malice. And there's ways to educate and create this environment where we're calling people in. Easier said than done. And I think it's a bit of a journey, but we have to be able to address that. With last, the worst thing we can do is to alienate communities and create more of that us versus them. We'll never make the progress we need to make if we do that. Yeah. I just love the aspect of calling in versus calling out yeah. culture. Right, making a space for someone, uh, making that clear without attacking somebody else, or like you said, if somebody says something that's culturally insensitive, it's hard not to call out. But I would always do it in a way where I would say something like, "Hey, you know what? That's that's not how we operate here. Let me tell you a little bit about what we're trying to accomplish." And then I would sort of get back to what is the culture we're trying to create, what is the environment we're trying to create, what type of team do we want to have. So somebody is reminded of like, okay, if I say something like that. I'm probably not fulfilling that objective, right? Yeah. So I completely agree. And I would, I would echo, you know, we talk a lot about the company and the company's values. At the end of the day, the company is us. We're all the company. The people, we are all the company, no matter what level you are, whether you've been with the company 20 years or two weeks, <laughs> whether you're in your 50s or 60s or in your teens or early 20s, right? We all are the company. And so we all, I keep saying, we have a role to play. No matter what our role is in the company, we can be a, an upstander versus a bystander. We can help call in. We could help create inclusive teams. We could help draw people in the conversation who aren't actively participating, right? So I think important for all of your team members to know that they are the company, right? They are the company and the culture and the values. Exactly. Great stuff, Brian. I appreciate hearing your perspective on all this stuff. It's awesome. Thank you. It's important yeah. stuff. It's important stuff. It's a journey. For sure. Let's talk a little bit about your current role uh, that you've been playing now for the last few years as Chief Sustainability Officer and what is uh, HPE's environmental social governance structure and mission, and what does your role entail? 
So I'll say that I, in the same way that I was lucky to come into a diversity program that existed before, very similar with our environmental, social, and governance program, we've long had a commitment to being good stewards of the environment, You know, not making a detrimental impact where we do business around the world on all levels, how we recycle products at the end of life, how we produce products to be environmentally friendly, how we think about our real estate footprint and our use of water and pollution, things like that, right? We've always been environmentally conscious, but the time and the focus on the space has changed significantly over the last few years. And it's not just HPE, it's just broadly an industry where historically, and I remember being a law student in corporations class years ago, being taught and drilled into my head that the purpose of the corporation is to add shareholder value. That's the only reason a corporation exists. And I think we've moved past that to this concept that's it's moved away from purely shareholder primacy to the fact that there's multiple stakeholders. It, it's around the people, it's around the planet, it's around our stakeholders. That's one, our shareholders rather, but there's a broader set of stakeholders and companies like ours are evolving our models to be able to address the needs of those various stakeholders. And so I came into this program about a year and a half ago with a primary goal of taking what's a strong environmental program and building a stronger environmental and social governance program, taking this broader purview, not just focusing on environmental agenda, like driving this net zero economy, thinking about our own carbon footprint and our march towards net zero and how we're creating environmentally efficient products and helping our customers reduce their carbon footprint, right? But also how we're investing in people whether it's through diversity and inclusion and fair pay, pay equity, all the elements of investment in people that work for us, but also how we invest in communities. We uh, all have the Hewlett-Packard Enterprise Foundation, which I'm honored to lead. We consider that a broad part of our, of our broad ESG agenda because that's where we make investments in communities around the globe. For example, Ukrainian uh, disaster relief, humanitarian relief, right? And then also how we kind of operate with integrity around standards of business conduct and making sure we're winning the right way. And so I've got a global team that gets to work and look across the enterprise to drive that environmental social governance agenda. We set aggressive goals around our progress in each of those spaces, and then we work across the business to be able to continue to to meet those goals. Our approach, by the way, to sustainability, we call living progress and every year we talk about our, our progress and living progress in our living progress report, which we just recently released our 2022 report just a, a few weeks ago. And I welcome your listeners to take a look. Excellent. Excellent. What are resources they can look at to be able to learn more about that? So uh, definitely, our, if you go to that hp.com forward slash living progress, hpe.com forward slash living progress, they'll find access to that report. And that report, and most big corporations now have a sustainability report. Ours has been in place for many years. And every year we kind of raise the bar, but it's all around transparency. It's being very transparent about how we performed against the goals. Did we make progress or not? It's about setting new aggressive goals around the diversity of our workforce and the volunteer hours of our volunteers inside the company or around our carbon neutrality goals, right? So it's, it's good reading about the good work that we're able to do. Excellent. I appreciate what you said about your company many years ago moved past the idea that shareholder value is the number one objective. Because I think that if shareholder value is increased but it's done at the expense of so many other things all around. There might be this like plus X within the shareholder community, within the company, but if it's at a cost of minus 2X or minus 10X outside 
of the company, it subtracts value in the world. I'm always trying to remind my kids that, you know, we live in a world with a lot of other people. There's 7 billion people in the world and everything we do affects everyone else. And we always have to be aware of what are the things we're doing that are having a positive impact and what are the things we're doing that have a negative impact. And I think that concept can apply to a big corporation like HPE. It can apply to a small entrepreneur and what they're doing on an individual basis. It can apply to every single one of us individually in how we carry ourselves and how we act on a day-to-day basis. We're all trying to get ours, of course, but at what impact to society are we getting what we want and making sure that we are uh, getting what we want while contributing to society to me, should be the the primary focus for anybody that's in business for sure. Uh, and I just appreciate how you how you presented that. Completely agree. And it's it's because it's the right thing to do, certainly. But it's it's a business value at the end of the day. Whether it's having a focus on making a broader impact helps us win more business because our customers care about that and they want to invest in or buy from companies that are socially conscious. Or because if we help uplift underrepresented communities, there's more people who can buy our consumer goods, right? Whatever it is, it's good business at the end of the day. And it's good that the industry has now kind of waken up to that fact. Yeah. How does this concept speak to your, the mission of that I've heard you talk about a lot of leaving a legacy? Totally. Yeah. That's what's critically important to me, particularly at this point in my career, where I'm probably closer to the end of my career than the beginning of my career, always kind of planting seeds and putting structures in place that will live, live beyond me. And that's been my focus in all my roles here. But certainly now, you know, we focus as a globe right now on the climate crisis, right? That, that we're all going to, our children are going to have to deal with in generations to come, if we don't kind of mobilize and act as corporations and individuals to help kind of kind of peel back pollution and work towards net zero economies. And so the work that we're able to do now, I'm, I'm helping with the team to put in place structures that will make a significant impact over time if we, we do this right. So it definitely speaks to my, my goal to kind of leave legacy. Yeah. What do you feel like is your personal mission, Brian? So I'm, I'm crazy passionate about helping people find and achieve purpose, right? Whatever that purpose is. And you, you get from the description of my career path, I've been always investing in community and giving back and help to uplift underrepresented communities and groups and very socially conscious. Again, do well by doing good. And I don't think that everyone has to be. It's, it's great when we are and we always want to make an impact. But I think it's fine to be irrationally passionate about selling products that make people's lives easier or creating code that adds business value or whatever that thing is that you're rationally passionate about, we have to be able to identify and be able to follow that that purpose. And so I'm all about being able to drive my own purpose to uplift communities, but also help people and empower people to be able to chase and achieve their own purpose. Excellent. And in Cutco Vector, we've got a ton of young entrepreneurs. They're all trying to get ahead. They're trying to you know, initially make some money and build their financial well-being and advance and grow? And what advice would you give young entrepreneurs who want to focus on this idea of doing well while doing good? I would say being able to identify what that purpose is. And it's okay if your primary purpose, especially younger, when you're younger, is to pay the bills and to make some money and to, to be successful. And that, that's, that's awesome. As we move forward in our careers, I think at some point we've got to identify what is it that we're going to be passionate about? What drives us? What's our 
purpose at core. Because if we don't do that, we'll never truly be happy, right? And you're never too young to be able to take some time to reflect and think what's really important to me. And that may change over our careers, but having kind of that that core set of values, what really gets you excited? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What uh, is it that you're passionate about? I'd advise your team members at any age to be thinking about what makes them happy and what impact they want to make. Great input right there. Yeah, excellent. Thanks a lot. You've shared some really great insights, Brian. As I said, I knew this would be uh, very insightful and very inspiring. Uh, and I really appreciate having you here. To wrap this up, uh, Brian, as you look into the future, yeah. what are you most excited about? Well, I'm super excited about the work that we've able, been able to do both within the four walls of, of HP, HPE, but also influencing just the valley that the technology industry and, and, and industry globally, right? That's been important. I feel good about the impact we've been able to make and planting the seeds for continued progress around diversity, inclusion, environmental sustainability. On a personal level, we're talking at a time when I'm going through a bit of transition my, myself. You mentioned I'm about 20-ish years with the company. 20 years with any company, that's about four or five lifetimes in tech, right? People don't stay with companies that long. And I've been blessed and honored to have some great big roles and make a contribution in the time that I've been here. But we recently announced that I'll be departing HPE later this year to transition into the the next challenge. And I can't yet announce what that next challenge is, but it's around continuing to drive purpose at a time when there's so much attention being paid to all things environmental, social, governance, the ESG, diversity, inclusion. So I feel yeah, uniquely positioned to continue to add value. So I'm looking, I'm excited about the next challenge and being able to continue to add value in this space. Excellent. Well, whatever it is that you find yourself uh, into, Brian, I'm sure you're going to have a powerful impact. I'm sure that you'll inspire a lot of people and that uh, you will be a fantastic role model for anybody who follows you and looks up to you. How can our audience follow you? Are you on, where do you hang out on social media? So I'm super easy to follow. I'm just Brian Tippins everywhere. So if at LinkedIn, I'm Brian Tippins, briantippins.com, Brian Tippins on Twitter, <laughs> on Instagram. I try to make it very easy, but a good starting point would be briantippins.com. And there, there's links from there. And I, I try to stay fairly active, sharing things that are insightful and important. Sometimes it's just pictures of my dinner if I've got a great meal <laughs> or pictures of the ranch out in Texas. So please do connect with me. And I, I honestly welcome your listeners to reach out and connect. And if there's any questions or advice, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always available. Fantastic. Thanks so much for everything you've provided for the audience here. I appreciate the value that you brought and appreciate uh, having you as a guest on the podcast, Brian. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to coming back for a future part two. Sounds good. Awesome. Brian Tippins, everyone. I'm sure you found that to be an inspiring conversation. I just want to say that what resonated for me is the idea of considering and identifying your purpose and what is your purpose in what you do. That's something everyone should ponder here today because we're all in business, of course, to be able to make a living and live the lifestyle that we want pay the bills and all those things, right? But what else? What else are you in business for? What else are you there to do? What legacy are you there to leave behind? Brian developed an appreciation for giving back, contributing to others very early in life. And I think that's such a healthy mindset to have. I have often used the analogy of a potluck banquet to describe the communities in which we live and operate. And that at a potluck, if everybody brings their best dish to the table, 
everybody brings something of great value, it increases the quality of the experience for every single other person who's there. If one person comes empty-handed, it doesn't have a whole lot of effect, but then when others follow and come empty-handed, now it diminishes the experience for every single person who is there. And so are you contributing to society and to the positive benefit of everyone you encounter? Or are you subtracting through the way that you live your life, through the way that you operate your business, through the way that you interact with other people on a day-to-day basis? Brian spoke very eloquently about the intentionality that must go into building diverse organizations. And he reminded us all that the purpose of that is not just because it's the right thing to do, even though it is, but that it adds business value. It provides a competitive advantage for any organization when there is a diverse organization with diverse leadership and many role models for anyone to look up to. Brian spoke about the concept of allyship, right? How are you an ally for different types of people in your organization and or in your communities? And the idea of the call-in versus call-out culture, which I thought was a great point as well. In the end, the goal for all of us should be to leave a legacy. That's what this podcast is all about. It's about changing lives. It's about impacting people in ways that will be meaningful to them forever and so that they can then in turn impact others. And that's how we create a ripple effect in the world that will go on and on and truly leave a legacy in our wake. I hope that you are inspired to be able to do that through this podcast. I hope you are inspired by Brian Tippins. I invite you to connect with Brian on social media and we invite your feedback on today's episode. Hope you enjoyed this, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.